In this podcast series, we discuss the first-line treatment strategies for the management of locally advanced metastatic urothelial carcinoma in Canada. This part of the series is based on a live webinar presented on September 12, 2023 by Dr. Normand Blais from the CHUM Cancer Centre in Montreal, Dr. Terence Friedlander from the Zuckerberg San Francisco General Hospital, and Dr. Shrikala Shridhar from the Princess Margaret Cancer Centre in Toronto. The video of the webinar is divided into four episodes, which are available on our website, and the link can be found in the episode description. In this fourth and final episode taken from the webinar, Drs. Normand Blais, Terence Friedlander, and Shrikala Shridhar provide their perspective on the management of the first-line treatment of locally advanced metastatic urothelial carcinoma, including a discussion of the optimal use of enfortumab vedotin plus pembrolizumab and the management of its associated adverse events. Hope you enjoy it. I think we can start with, with a discussion. And one I would like to bring to Terry right away is that through my participation uh, on EV302, we've had a chance to experience difficult toxicities to manage and rashes, liver enzyme abnormalities. It's really hard to figure out uh, which agent is responsible. You know, in the lung cancer world, it's easy. You use chemotherapy or you use immuno. Or, you know, you have a chance to, to know which agent is, is responsible for toxicity. But with EV and Pembro, sometimes it's, it's more challenging. So on a patient-to-patient basis, how do you guesstimate what is doing what and how do you manage dose modifications or maybe dose breaks for different drugs? Yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's, it can be really challenging because some of these toxicities really overlap. The skin can overlap, especially... You know, there is a certain element of timing with this. Like I've, I've had patients who get skin toxicity from EV. It happens usually early, like within the first cycle. And skin toxicity from Pembro is more uh, sort of a later phenomenon. So, you know, if I have someone who gets a, an infusion of EV and within a week is having skin toxicity, it's almost likely, almost definitely the EV as opposed to the Pembro, just too early to get Pembro toxicity. In which case, I you know will give steroids, topical, oral, dose delay, dose reduce. Those are like sort of your four options for you know um, someone who has bad skin toxicity. Um, that while while EV does have you know a number of toxicities, like I showed in that table, you know the most common ones are are, are rash um, and then neuropathy. And so if you're seeing those, those are most likely going to be from the EV. If it's later on, you know it could be from the Pembro, the rash. Um, at the end of the day, the treatment is pretty much the same, which is to hold therapy and give steroids and then, you know, reassess. Um, there's no good test that I know of that can distinguish between the two. Um, pneumonitis is the other one. Pneumonitis is rarely reported it, with EV, but it has been. It was seen, as I mentioned, in a study in Korea, and that can happen with EV as well. Again, it's almost like it's almost at some degree academic as to which agent's causing it, because once you see it, it's bad. You have to start giving, you know, steroids, pulmonary referral, bronchoscopy, et cetera. Um, I'd be cautious with anybody who had pneumonitis about using either of these drugs again. Um, that said, if they were, you know, very few options left, I might consider re- retrying EV. But, you know, I'd have to be really thoughtful about that. So at the end of the day, I think I think getting a good feel for what the pace of development of autoimmune toxicities are with pembrolizumab, which hopefully most most providers have some feel for now, considering how uh, sort of widely used um, PD-1 inhibitors are in in oncology today. 
Um, and then getting more experience with EV is going to be helpful to, to sort of adjudicate what's going on. But I honestly can't stress enough that I've, I've had patients who have side effects or toxicity and just lowering the dose really does help, um, like for rash, especially, or for neuropathy. I often find that I'm, I have patients, if they stay on EV long enough, they'll go from 1.25 to 1 to 0.75. I've gone as low as 0.5, although that study, that, that dose hasn't been very well studied. So it's hard to know if you're actually doing something beneficial to the patient at that dose. But I think preparing the patients well ahead of time and just on day one or even on day zero, you know, when I'm mentioning this drug, I just tell them you're likely going to have to dose reduce the drug because otherwise I find that kind of patients will kind of fight me on it. They'll say, no, it's working. Look, my, my scans look better. I don't want to reduce the dose, but, you know, I can't tie my 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 bow tie anymore, my whatever. I can't play the piano. I can't write my name. And then then they're, they're you know, the neuropathy is too, really too far gone. So I think I think the preparation is really key. So does that make sense? It, it does. It does, and and that leads me to to follow up maybe with Kala on on a point that I tried to make when I discussed this with my colleagues is that not many of us have experience in Canada with EV Pembro, and I know Kala has had a lot of experience developing that combination, and and maybe people that are on this call that have not had the chance to. Uh, play with this combination, there are international and Canadian experts that can help them out. And I think for the first generation of treatments that we'll be using, uh, hopefully in Canada, uh, we should, as a community, help out our colleagues that uh, uh, that don't have as much experience. And my experience has been the same as yours, is that dose, rapid dose reduction is probably the key to long-term benefit. I completely agree with that. I think that, you know, really the balance between dose toxicity is going to be really important. I think we've all had a lot of experience with EV, at least EV single agent and third line. And when you're starting to get up there, you know, nine, 10 cycles and patients are starting to have problems like functionally. And so I think it's really important, you know, to look at dose reductions and, and to look at maybe giving them a break, giving them steroids. And, you know, the other question is, what happens when you get up there and they've had a several cycles of EV Pembro, they're having toxicity and the neuropathy being the main toxicity in some cases, do you step back on the EV and keep the Pembro going? Like, should we be exploring that type of thing looking ahead, right? Like what is tolerable? And is there a way to keep patients stable clinically from an efficacy standpoint, but also keep them stable from a toxicity standpoint? Because I think that's going to be really, really important. And these patients have other risk factors, hypertension, diabetes, prior platinum, maybe once, maybe twice, and you know, depending on when they've had it. So I think we really have to think about the toxicity considerations. And our patients are living longer. I mean, let's face it, our, you know, I don't see that many patients, you know, having shorter than sort of 12 months life expectancy. So so it's important that we think about these things. You know, it's important to recognize which drug is helpful and which drug is important to keep on later on and to avoid toxicities to potentially be able to re-expose them to a potentially useful drug mm-hmm. is, is something of a, you know, is something to, to keep in mind when we treat patients. I think, Terry, you have easier access to EV Pembro as a strategy for patients. Uh, my question to you would be, do you still see the use of using first-line chemotherapy followed by maintenance of Elamab? And which patients yeah. would you choose for that? 
Yeah, I mean, I you know, I've given so much EV Pembro at this point that I tend to gravitate towards that just because the data looks looks pretty good. But you know, we are talking about phase two data. We don't have phase three data. And to date, for cisplatin ineligible, the only phase three data is, is actually with carboplatin. So there's that argument. I'm not I'm not totally swayed by that. EV Pembro is expensive here in the US. You know, I think it's it runs close to thirty thousand dollars a dose, which is, you know, from a health economics perspective, really challenging. And we often have trouble giving it, for example, in a hospitalized patient because of the way the reimbursements work here. So very often, if we have someone who's very sick in the hospital and needs to get started and is cisplatin ineligible, then I'll use carbo in that scenario where I can't get EV. Um, And maybe if I can give the Pembro, I will, you know, at a later point, or I'll switch them over to EV Pembro. But, you know, so there's still a role for that. I mean, carboplatin is, but in comparison, is, you know, pennies, I think, for, for the entire regimen. So at least for the carbo itself. So so there is sort of an argument to be made there. You know, the, some providers feel more comfortable giving carbo. We sort of have a very clear, you know, known toxicity profile. So there's, there's a reason to do that. I think if, if patients had you know, uh, bad diabetes, because again, we're not supposed to give this drug if the EV, if the if the A1C is greater than eight. So uncontrolled diabetes, if they have just fasting blood sugars that are very high, it's dangerous to give MMAE. Um, so I avoid it in, in diabetics. As I mentioned, really obese patients may have more trouble. They may have, get more toxicity. I don't think we totally understand why, but it may have to do with this effect on diabetes. So there are, and then people have pre-existing neuropathy, you know, where carbo is, I don't think as neuropathic as, as EV is, um, I may, may, you know, exercise a lot of caution. So, so you want to be careful about who you're giving this to. I have given it to elderly and frail patients. I've had, you know, I have a woman who's almost 90 now who's has liver metastases and she's getting EV alone in the third line, but actually is doing really well. Her liver mets are smaller and she she doesn't want to stop, but she's getting a little wobbly as she walks. And I'm really nervous, you know, that she's going to she's going to have some kind of side effect or toxicity that's bad. So we dose reduce appropriately, things like that. So I do think you have to just be as, as like as enthusiastic as I am about this regimen and about the kind of steps forward we're making. I think you have to be really careful about giving it and make sure that you're, you know, monitoring the patients really closely. So. I will also just to add on, you know, a lot of our patients will stop the EV, you know, after six months or eight months or sometimes nine months. We've had one patient who was on the trial who's on like cycle 67 of EV and has no neuropathy and I have no idea what's going on and she just wants to keep getting it and it's on the study. So we do, but the vast majority of our patients stop the EV after about six months or so. And then they usually continue the Pembro if they can for one to two years and then they'll stop there. And I have some patients from that cohort A who are now four years out. There are those CRs that you see on the bar on the on the bar charts, um, and they're loving it. You know, they're like, I don't know if they're cured of bladder cancer, but you know, they're certainly in really good shape. And so it's that's really satisfying to see because we, you know, speaking for a lot of people on this call, we never saw that decade ago. We'd never see someone four years out doing really well. So that's just it's it's really it's really exciting. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with that. And just to add to that, I think. You know, when you think about the response rates just in second line to Pembro, it's ah, it's all right, about 15 to 20 percent. And so it's OK. But I am seeing those patients now who are three, four years out, finish their two years of Pembro and are on nothing doing really well. And that's hugely rewarding and certainly something we never used to see before. And, you know, I don't have people as long out on EV Pembro, but if we're getting the same sort of kind of thing going on where maybe they've been on EV Pembro for several cycles and gone on Pembro alone, and then now off all treatment, that's a big win. So 
I think that's that's um, that's an important step forwards in this disease for sure. The other quick points I was going to say, just in terms of frontline treatment, I tend to be more of a cisplatin person than a carbo person. I, I think it may be a bit better, and I think it'll be very interesting to see what plays out in frontline. We've seen the press release from Checkmate 901, GemSys plus Nevo versus GemSys improved PFS and OS. That's all we know so far, but it speaks to maybe the combinability of plat- cisplatin and IO. So how that's going to impact remains to be seen. Um, and, and I guess we'll see how things play out and hopefully we'll get some access to EV Pembro, but it may be dependent on EV302 results and then Health Canada approval and then funding at some point down the line. And our regulators, uh, we were talking earlier about access to NGS and, uh, Dr. Cheng brought that up. Our regulators in Canada are very difficult and they're getting tougher and tougher to convince that new therapies and new expensive therapies uh, are worth the amounts of dollars that are being spent. So the same applies to NGS for diagnosis of particular modalities. In my province, if a drug is not funded for use, uh, you don't have access to molecular diagnosis. So you can't even know if the patient, if you need to fight for the patient to access a particular drug. Uh, so the same situation might happen when EV302 comes out, so it's going to depend on the magnitude of the survival benefit. It's going to be dependent on a regulator's belief that the comparator arm was the standard of care arm, uh, because we should have the discussion on does EV302 have the right comparator or not, and maybe, Kala, you're smiling at my question. Maybe you want to comment that. Yeah, uh, and how do we resolve that issue uh, before our regulators uh, give us difficulty uh, with that analysis? Yeah, I think it's a fantastic question. I think the control arm in both the EV302 study and the Checkmate uh, 901 study is not necessarily re- reflective of everything that we do today. I mean, admittedly, there's a portion of patients who will progress and will never go on to receive a Velimab, but it really makes one question and wonder, and how do we... How do we statistically sort this out will be the important question. And I think the, the patients that access subsequent therapies will, will be really important. It's almost like the control arm has two groups. One is a group that didn't go on to get Avelimab if they were supposed to, and the group that did. So, so I think it's getting a bit murky. I mean, it speaks to the development in the disease, which is exciting, but all the same, how do we ensure that some of these drugs that are very good do get to where they should go? I'm, I'm not on the statistical committee of 302, but uh, maybe Terry and Khaled, maybe you know how you can potentially do some statistical analyses that are going to look at patients that were potentially available for Avelumab in countries that had that available. Any plans to to look at that, you think? So so I think from what I've heard is that the the there's been an announcement that they're specifically not going to look at the Avelumab data when they present this because they don't think there'll be enough patients who received it to be meaningful and it started after the study. So the Avelumab question is going to be kind of hanging there. The other, I think, challenge with 302, if you if you remember, I showed the slide and it's EV Pembro versus combination of either cis or carbo plus gemcitabine. And there's not actually, uh, it's not power to look at EV Pembro versus cisplatin and then EV Pembro versus carboplatin. It's either going to be better than both, the same or, you know, or, or worse. So um, there'll be subset analyses, and I think that's probably what we're going to rely on to say, okay, this regimen beats carboplatin. That wouldn't surprise me given all the data I just showed. 
Um, will it beat cisplatin? Who knows, you know, because there's never been a study looking at that. So, you know, you could have a lot of different outcomes here. And and one outcome could be that you have Checkmate 901, which is Gemsys Nevo for cisplatin eligible. EV Pembro, if it's better than Carbo, is your sort of carboplatin eligible regimen. But if it if it's better than if EV Pembro is better than both cis and carbo, then you may have these sort of multiple regimens you can choose from. So that's part of the reason why I think ESMO this year is going to be pretty interesting to see the Checkmate 901 data. And whenever the 302 data actually comes out in the next couple of months, I think that's going to significantly impact the front line and hopefully allow for approvals in Canada and elsewhere in the world for EV Pembro if it's assuming it's it's better than than Carbo for sure. Yeah, great. Potentially one way to look at that, I'm sorry for cutting you power, but potentially one way to look at that is to specifically look at the first six months because that's when consolidation is not used. And and if you already have a difference there, uh, that's that's potentially a very good start to to very good regimen. So um maybe Kelly, you wanted to. You know, no, the only the only thing I was going to say was, you know, there there may be the hope that a regimen like EV Pembro, where you're not fighting with the cis eligible, carbo eligible, cis ineligible, that whole discussion kind of goes out the window. Does that take patients who would have otherwise maybe just gotten an IO alone in frontline setting, at least in the US, not in Canada, would it kind of elevate those patients to actually getting something in that frontline setting more active than IO alone, right? So so that could be a positive thing because this cis eligible, cis ineligible, we, like we talk about it so much, but it, it'll be kind of nice if we don't. That was the first point. The second point will be really interesting to see what happens if EV Pembro, or even for that matter, Gemsys Nebo, whatever those, if, if EV Pembro comes into the frontline setting, what do we do next? What do we do at the time of disease progression? Do we go to GEM-CYST? Do we go to GEM-CARBO? And then do you use maintenance of LMAP or not? Because that certainly has not been tested in any setting, right? So so what happens? And then how will we in Canada ensure that we don't lose access to things or maybe we should lose access? I don't know, right? So this this will be a, an important question. Certainly in, in the kidney world, they've done the CONTACT-3 study that looked at the re-challenge with an IO. So they took patients who were IO exposed and then they gave them a Tezo plus cabozantinib versus cabozantinib alone and showed that there was no benefit to re-challenging with a Tezo. Different drug, different disease. What's the story in bladder? I, I don't think we know, but I think it's it'll be interesting to find out. So maybe Terry can help us with the, the experience in the U.S. of second-line therapy after yeah. EV Pembro. Yeah, we, we don't really know what to do. I mean, I will use platinum. I'll give Gem Carbo um, if they're not cisplatin eligible. Um, and I, you know, I've had a few cases, patients who responded like, you know, we love to beat up on platinum, you know, cause it's so, it's been around for forever, but you know, it does work in some patients, even carboplatin, you know, even though it's not great. So, you know, there's that, you know, here in the U S we also have access to sasituzumab govotecan. So is that better than carbo? Are they kind of the same? Like, you know, we don't know. There's a phase three of, of sasituzumab, the, the tropic so four study that we're waiting on. Um, Ertafitinib, if you have, if the patient has an FGFR um, three or or two two fusion um, or mutation, so so we do have some options. Um, the other you know big things coming are you know HER two targeted therapy. So we have you know Desitimab Vidotin is um, another. It actually looks much like Infortimab Vidotin. It's an MMA containing anti HER two therapy. We'll see where that goes. 
And actually, this is something nobody talks about, but in the EV-103 trial, there were cohorts of EV, pembrolizumab, and cisplatin, EV, pembrolizumab, and carboplatin, small cohorts, and that's not been reported yet. So, you know, is there some benefit to a triplet? You know, we'll have to see, um, you know, maybe just throw the kitchen sink at the patients. But, you know, there's there's much more to come there, I think, and probably we need bigger numbers. But, but you know, there's going to be, I think, many, many years of of work to, to deconvolute all this. And I think it's a good call for biomarkers, because if we could find a good biomarker that identifies that, you know, 8% of patients that Kala mentioned who have primary resistance to EV, we can just avoid using an expensive and toxic, you know, potentially toxic drug. But, you know, there was some early uh, recent data from Europe looking at um, Nectin-4 expression, actually showing that low Nectin-4, patients with a low Nectin-4 actually didn't respond. So so maybe there is something to Nectin-4 assays, but there's, as of today, no CLIA-certified Nectin-4 assay um, in the U.S., so we have no way to test for it. So I think there's a lot more work to do here to to try and tailor therapy to you know each patient. On a similar type of question, we we now have access in some provinces in Canada to adjuvant nivolumab. So how does that impact your choice of first line therapy in the metastatic setting? Would you still go for EVPembro if a patient progresses on nevo? I mean, I you know I, I I look at I showed that slide of this sort of question of synergy. You know, when you give Pembro with EV, are you generating you know a, a more impressive response than you would if you just gave them sequentially? So I've given the the EV Pembro after adjuvant Nevo. I have no idea if I'm just wasting money, time, and you know, patient you know, like like the drug by giving Pembro in that situation. But I also don't have good data that tells me it's not beneficial. And I think, Holly, you really highlight well the contact three study in kidney cancer where, you know, it's not worth giving the drugs. There's not, there's clearly not a synergy, at least with the TKI, but that might be different with the MMA containing, you know, ADC. So we'll have to see, um, but that's going to be yet another study we need to sort of, you know, do or investigate. I think it's a great point too. And then I think that, you know, it'll come down to things like timing. So how long have they been on the adjuvant? Like how long since they came off the adjuvant treatment? That might be important in determining what you do in frontline. If we have EV Pembro available, if not, if you go to something like GemSys, we're sort of getting used to this maintenance concept, right? So do we all of a sudden say, okay, you've had a good response and then now we're done and we wait, like we're back to where we were before. So, so hard to know, but again, biomarkers might help us somehow understanding things a little better. So I guess there's a lot of work for Jumak uh, for the next coming years to try to help our colleagues uh, work with this combination. I'm really enthusiastic about it, and I think it's going to become an option for us. I think the data uh, will show uh, very significant benefits for for at least some patient groups. So uh, I'm going to be really excited to see how that pans out. So returning to the frontline space, I think there's a lot of excitement about some of the new trials that um, have just uh, been announced as positive. As, as we talked about before, the EV302 trial was announced as positive. This is comparing infortimabidotin plus pembrolizumab compared to platinum-based chemotherapy. And the second study was the Checkmate 901 trial, which compares cisplatin, gemcitabine, and nivolumab, followed by nivolumab maintenance, to standard of care cisplatin and gemcitabine. Um, I think when you, uh, we need to see the data for both of these trials. These have only been, um, the data has only come out as a press release and really just an announcement that the studies were positive. And I think there's some important questions to see. First of all, what is the hazard ratio for survival? What's the magnitude of benefit here? 
compared to standard platinum-based chemotherapy? I think that's the first question everyone's going to ask. What is the response rate? What's the PFS? What's the toxicity? I think we probably have a good sense of those based on the phase two trials. What I think is really important is to think about the control arm for each of these studies, which uh, was, was very similar is basically platinum-based chemotherapy. In the Checkmate 901 study, it was cisplatin-based chemotherapy. In the EV302 study, it was any platinum-based chemotherapy. And what I think is important to think about is not just the platinum, but also the PD-1 therapy, because um, neither study mandated that patients get maintenance of Elumab, even though maintenance of Elumab is a standard of care um, across, uh, essentially across the world now. I think the reason it wasn't mandated is that both of these studies launched before the um, Javelin 100 trials had reported out. So, so, so Avelimab wasn't a standard of care at the time that the study was um, initiated. So the control arms may be slightly disfavored in terms of many patients not getting checkpoint inhibitors. And we know that checkpoint inhibitors generate long, long-term durable responses in about 20% of patients. Um, nonetheless, I think that what these studies are showing is that there's a lot of value to moving checkpoint inhibitors up in treatment paradigm. And whether patients are eligible for cisplatin or not eligible for cisplatin, it appears that giving an upfront therapy with a, a PD-1 inhibitor is important. So, you know, how we're going to treat patients if we suddenly have positive studies in the same space, for example, cisplatin-eligible patients could get either, presumably could get either EV and Pembro, or they could get cisgem and nivolumab, followed by nivolumab maintenance. I think that we uh, still have to see what the data looks like to know which of those is going to be better, because, you know, it's hard to know based on just these press releases. But if the survival curve, for example, for EV Pembro looks really strong, you know, if we have like in the phase one, two trial where we saw 30 or 40% of patients being progression free past two years, you know, that's pretty strong. So we'll have to see what the data looks like in 901. And I think um, we'll, we'll see how this plays out. At the end of the day, it's great for patients. It's great for the field. We're really moving moving the, the needle here, moving the bar, and finally getting some positive upfront phase three clinical trials. So uh, we've come to the end of our time. So uh, I'm going to thank in, um, in you of my colleagues, Terry and Kala, for a very interesting discussion, for a very interesting review of uh, the data concerning patients that uh, we like to treat. So um, we're going to potentially have to discuss this again. So uh, on behalf of all my colleagues and uh, Sijen that has uh, been uh, supporting this uh, program, I'd like to uh, wish you a very good night. Thank you.